Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 15, please. The Gospel of John. And if you haven't been with us on Sunday mornings, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. We've taken a, a little bit of a break for our missions conference. Uh, but today we're going to get back into our study through this Gospel. And the Gospel of John was written certainly about the life of Jesus Christ, but it was written to highlight the deity of Jesus Christ from that point of view. And everything that you find in the Gospel of John is related to showing and highlighting the fact that Jesus is God, God in the flesh, and that he is deity. And so from that angle or from that point of view, we've walked through up to chapter 15. And we started chapter 15 a few weeks ago. And the setting of the text for us today, which, by the way, is verses 18 through 27, and we'll get, we'll get to that in just a minute. <clears throat> but the setting of this, and what we need to remember as we get into this text again, is that Jesus is, is talking and teaching his disciples. And from this moment that we're going to read about here, and really all of chapter 15 and chapter 16, what we find is that from, from the time that that Jesus was with his disciples in the prior chapter, less than 24 hours from that point in time, Jesus was going to be crucified. And these last uh, hours of Jesus' life, Jesus is investing in his disciples, preparing them for what would come, preparing them for when he would be gone. And at the end of chapter 14, the Bible says, but that the uh, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, even so do I. And then these last words, arise, let us go hence. And, and the context of that is that Jesus has been in, at supper with his disciples. And he's predicted that Judas is going to betray him. He's predicted that Peter was going to deny him. And all of this is about to happen, about to take place. And then Jesus says, arise and let us go hence. And they get up. And they start to walk, and we would, we would uh, make the, the connection that Jesus is, is walking to the Garden of Gethsemane at this point. And so from the time of supper to the time that they arrive in the Garden of Gethsemane, as they walk, Jesus is still teaching his disciples. And like I said, less than 24 hours from this time, Jesus is going to be crucified Judas has gone. They've observed the Lord's Supper even at this point. And they're probably walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. And here Jesus continues to teach as he is preparing his disciples for when he would be gone. And Jesus uses the opportunity to teach them a valuable truth. And in this, this valuable truth is one that we must learn as well. Chapter 15, we said when we first started this chapter, it was divided up into three sections. The first section was verses 1 through 11. Jesus talks to them about abiding in the vine. And he, he gives the parable of a vine and abiding in the vine. And it really deals with our relationship and our fellowship to Jesus Christ. We can't do anything if we don't abide in the vine. The second part of this chapter is verses 12 through 17, where Jesus says, uh, a new commandment I give unto you, uh, or verse 12, this commandment that, that I, is, is this, that ye love one another as I have loved you. And we said that second section was a commandment of the Lord, to love one another. And that whole section deals with our relationship to other people. 
And then we get to the last section, which is our text for today, verses 18 through 27. We said it was a warning. Because Jesus goes from talking about loving the brethren, and he turns his attention to what the disciples would face, and that is the hatred of the world. Now look with me in verse 18. Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word which I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause." But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. This last section we have labeled or called a warning. So the first is a parable. Jesus talks about abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ. It deals with our relationship and our fellowship to Christ which is the root and the foundation of everything else. Then there was a commandment. Jesus says that you love one another. It deals with our relationship to others. And then this last section, a warning, which deals with our relationship to the world. And so Jesus turns, as he's preparing his disciples, from loving the brethren to what they're going to face in this world. And so we're going to talk about that today because there's a valuable lesson in here for us as God's people as well. So let's pray, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, use your word today. Lord, I pray that you give liberty to preach. Lord, fill with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had times in your life where where, uh, there's a challenging situation that's coming, and you don't know anything about it, and so you feel a bit anxious, you feel a bit nervous about it, and you wish you had more information about this challenging situation that's coming up? You ever had times like that? Isn't it nice when, when, when you're going to face a difficult situation? Isn't it nice and helpful to have some idea in advance of what you're going to be in for? Like I, sometimes I face that. Somebody will call me up and say, Pastor, I really need to talk to you. But I can't talk to you until Wednesday. And I'm like, okay, what is this about? And I really want to know, well, can you give me an idea? At least, can you give me a hint of what you want to talk about uh, so I can think about it, so I can be helpful? And a lot of times it's people's problems. A lot of times it's, you know, things like that, that it's just like this is a, uh, something very heavy. I pastor, I got to talk to you. Well, okay, well, what is this about? It's helpful to have some idea in advance of what you're going to be in for. Well, that's really what Jesus is doing with his disciples here. They were going to be in for some rough roads after Jesus departed back to heaven. 
They were going to be in for things that they had no idea what was coming. And Jesus is trying to tell them what to expect in this world. There was one preacher who tells of a, a funny story, a funny event that happened when he was in the Coast Guard and when he went to boot camp to be in the Coast Guard. He says that there was a guy that showed up for boot camp with his water skis and his fishing pole. And the reason he did that was because the recruiter had told him that boot camp was going to be on an island, which was true. And that you could water ski and you could fish in the estuary surrounding the island, which was also true. If you is understood to mean a person could technically go and do these things, then that is plausible. And, but if you means you personally, it was about the furthest thing imaginable from the truth. And he goes on to say that the recruiter conveniently failed to tell this naive recruit that the first day of boot camp, they issue you your uniform and they make you ship all of your civilian clothes including your undergarments, and along with your comb, along with your shampoo, along with all the things that you brought, they make you ship it all back home. The only thing you could keep was a razor and some shaving cream. And the reason was because you wouldn't need your comb. You wouldn't need your shampoo after they gave you your boot camp haircut because you wouldn't have any hair left. Also, he didn't tell them that they control your life all day and all night for nine weeks. If they wanted to wake you up at two o'clock in the morning, have you marked or stand in formation out in the cold, they could do that. And so for the next nine weeks, you are not in control of your life. They were. And he goes on to say that if that recruit had been told anything close to the truth, he might not have actually signed up. At least he wouldn't have shown up with his water skis and his fishing pole. And I told you that story to make a point because it kind of illustrates where we need to go here today. Because in reality, in Christianity, and, in, in, and I'm going to use Christianity in quotes here, because in Christianity there are recruiters out there in the form of, of evangelists, televangelists, in the form of other denominations or non-denominational churches and so on, who entice people to sign up for Christianity, as it were. You know how they do that? They describe the Christian life as something that is full of wonderful benefits for you. And they'll say things like this, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, doesn't that sound awesome? Doesn't that sound great? God does love you, number one. Number two, God does have a plan for your life. But it doesn't come in the form of health and wealth. It doesn't come in the form of a social gospel. And people recruit people to Christianity by describing these wonderful benefits that you're going to receive because God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It sounds really good to the guy whose life is a wreck. And his life is all messed up and I can get out of this situation because if I become a Christian, God's going to make all my problems go away. 
It sounds pretty good to people in war-torn countries who all they want to do is just leave the country that they're in. Oh, if I become a Christian, all of a sudden life is going to be so much better. You follow what I'm saying? One of the things I appreciate about our evangelist, our missionary Noah George, in the Middle East, he told me this morning, pray for the country of Lebanon. It's getting harder and harder for people to live here. And all people ever talk about is they just want to leave the country. And you know what? Noah George could have, he could have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of professions of faith, probably, if he told people that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and if you just, if you just become a Christian, God will make all the problems go away. Listen, that's what the social gospel is. When they preach the social gospel, they say, you know what? If you give and you give, God is going to bless your life abundantly. And look, you can live like me as I drive around in my whatever car and sail away on my yacht. These charlatan false teachers and preachers, uh, you know, they, they're deceivers. And they tell people, you know what? If you're sick, there's something wrong in your life. God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. Look at me. And all the while, they just keep getting more and more rich. And, and people don't seem to, see, to, to find the same riches. How come? Well, you just need to give more. You just need to give more. God's going to bless your life. And they deceive people into becoming a Christian. Because God has a wonderful plan for your life. And God does love you. And God does have a plan for your life. But it doesn't come in the form of health and wealth. And all of these benefits. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite if you're going to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. There are benefits to following the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to have trials. And you're going to have persecution. That's the reality. You know, when Noah George is preaching the gospel in Lebanon, Noah George doesn't tell people that life is going to be good for him. In fact, he tells them, you got to take up your cross and you have to follow Jesus Christ. And people over there understand what it means to truly follow Jesus Christ. And the reality of it is, it probably is going to mean persecution for you in a Muslim country. It's no joke. Whereas in our country, and people who claim Jesus Christ, there is no consequence. We're just all Christians here. We all love God. You understand what I'm saying? Look in Mark chapter 10 with me. Just keep your place here. This is a lesson that we need to learn as saints of God. The reality of following Jesus Christ. Jesus said, in verse 18 of our text, and we're going to break these verses down in just a little bit. He said, but if the world hates you, just know that it hated me first. And this is what you're going to expect when I leave and I go back to my father. This is the kind of thing that you need to understand, friends. It's not a, uh, it's not a bed of ease. In Mark chapter 10, in verse 28, the Bible says this, Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all, and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospel's, 
But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. We do have benefits from the Lord in following Christ, but Jesus says, don't think it's a bed of roses. All the things that you, you know, that you would forsake for my sake in the gospel, I'm going to return to you again. But also along with that is coming some persecutions. He says, with persecutions. And Jesus knew that after he left his disciples to return to heaven, that they would face some difficult opposition from the world. You know, back in John chapter 14, Jesus had just told his disciples that you're going to do even greater works than I have done. And it's possible maybe the disciples were envisioning, you know, receptive crowds, huge crowds that would follow, maybe smooth sailing in their life. But the reality was they would actually face very severe persecution and even give their life for following Jesus Christ. Not just from the pagan world, but also from the religious crowd. And the Lord wanted his disciples to know what to expect from the world and how to respond to their hostility that they would experience. And friend, that is a message that we need to hear. These verses in our text, they paint a sober, even grim picture if it weren't for what Jesus had already said to his disciples in the first part of the chapter about abiding in the vine. And Jesus says, you abide in me, and I in you, and you're going to experience my love, and you're going to experience my, my fellowship, and, and you're going to be able then, because of me, you'll be able to overcome what is going to happen to you from the world. If we abide in Christ, we experience his love, then we can endure the hostility of the world. And our text this morning, if you go back to John 15, it falls into two sections. We're going to break it down into two sections. Number one, the world's hatred of Christians. But then number two, our responsibility to the hostile world, namely to bear witness of Jesus Christ. And so let's go back to John chapter 15, and let's consider this first thought, the world's hatred of Christianity. Jesus says in verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Jesus tells his disciples very plainly that the world is going to hate you. But know this, if the world hates you, just know that it hated me first. And if the world has persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But... If they've heard my saying and listened to my saying, they're going to listen to yours also. And the question that we might ask here in this moment is, why does the world hate Christianity, true Christianity? Well, Jesus gives us the first answer, the first reason why the world hates true Christianity. First of all, the world hates true Christianity because it hated Jesus Christ first. And we belong to him. 
So Jesus says here, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And know this, that I have chosen you out of the world. You're not of the world. Therefore, the world hates you because it hated me first. Now, notice the word if in verse 18. If the world hates you. You need to understand that that is not a term of uncertainty. You know, like, if this were possibly to happen, I'm not sure it's going to happen. It might. That is not a term of uncertainty here. In fact, it's of the Greek construction that basically says something like this, Brother Legit, if the world hates you, and I promise you it will, this is what's going to happen. It comes, it has a feeling of like, no, this is actually going to happen. It's a guarantee. And that's the, the idea behind it. And that's why John says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 13, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised because it's coming. And from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, there was always conflict with the world and those of the world, especially from the religious crowd who were actually of their father, the devil. Jesus said in John 18 and verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. It's not of this world. It's of a different kind. And there's conflict. And there always was conflict from the very beginning. Look in Matthew chapter 5 with me. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and look at verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, People are blessed if they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. He said you're actually blessed if men revile you and persecute you for, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Your reward in heaven is great. Now look at Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. In verse 9. Mark 13, 9. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils and in the synagogues, Ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father, the son, the children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. And he shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end shall be, shall be saved. I'm just reading these verses because it's pretty clear from these verses and other things that Jesus said 
that Jesus saw animosity towards believers from an unbelieving world because of him. And whatever pain and whatever suffering might come along with that, it's something that ought to be expected, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me. And so Jesus predicted that there would be afflictions, even some suffering from the world toward those who love and follow Jesus Christ. He says, the world hates you. Just know that it hated me first. You're not better than me. The servant is not greater than the Lord. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Why does the world hate Christianity? Because it hates Jesus Christ. Another reason the world hates Christianity is because as Christians, we oppose the world and its systems. Go back to our text in verse, 9, verse 19. Verse 19, Jesus says here, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. The reason, another reason is because as Christians, we oppose the world. You know, what, what does it mean when we say we oppose the world? It means that we're not part of its culture. As a child of God, as a follower of Christ, we're not to be part of the culture of the world. Jesus says, I've chosen you out of the world. You're not of the world. We are not culturally part of the in-group in the world. And when we use the term world, or as John uses it here, it refers to the evil systems of sin in the world. It refers to the system of the world that is authored by Satan, that's acted out by humanity. It refers to a system that is godless. In more plain terms, we would say it's the depraved society of wicked men that have set themselves against Christ and his kingdom. It's philosophies, it's ideologies, of the world system, the way the world thinks and operates. And we're not to be part of that. We're not in the cultural group of the world. We move against the mainstream, against the secular flow of ideas and practices. We stand opposed to the wrongs and true injustices in the world, not the ones that they make up. You heard of cancel culture, remember that? Cancel anything that is in opposition to our agenda. Cancel anything that is opposed to our system. How, how about we just cancel the culture? How about that instead? Jesus says you're not of the world. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. Now let me just make a point here. As a Christian... As a born-again believer, as a child of God, if the world thinks you're wonderful, I would question whether or not you're saved. Or, at least, whether or not you're actually a witness for Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you. But you're not. And I've chosen you out. Therefore, the world hateth you. Now, let me make another statement here. As born-again believers, we should not be the source of offense by being insensitive or being rude or being obnoxious. That's not what we're about. 
but we should not be loved by the world or those that belong to it as Christian people. And we shouldn't be the source of offense. We shouldn't be insensitive. We shouldn't be rude. We need to conduct our life with wisdom and grace and sensitivity towards unbelievers. That's what the scriptures teach us. Look in Colossians 4 just really quick and let me make this point and move on. Colossians chapter 4, the Word of God tells us how we ought to conduct ourselves, especially for the cause of Christ. In Colossians 4, in verse 5, Paul says to the church in in Colossae, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. And so we do have a responsibility as, as born-again believers, to not be part of the world's system. We should not be loved by the world, but we also shouldn't be a source of offense because if we're rude and obnoxious or we're better than you. No, our, our speech ought to be seasoned with salt and grace so that we can know how to answer every man. We ought to be like Christ. That's how he was. But what I am saying is this. As a believer... There ought to be a marked difference between you and those of the world. And when there is, there is going to be some sort of animosity, not because of necessarily you, but because of the truth. For example, unbelievers will be tolerant of you as a Christian until you start to say things that, like this, that Jesus Christ is the absolute only way that you will ever see God and ever be go to heaven. The world wants to embrace a system of religion that says, oh, we all love God. We're all God's children. God loves everyone. I hope I'll get to heaven someday. But the moment that you start to say that truth is exclusive and Jesus Christ is the only way, John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The moment you take that stand, the world's going to start to hate you. They'll accuse you of being intolerant. The world will be friendly until you make it clear that God has absolute moral standards and the standards of the world are absolutely wrong. They're going to be tolerant and friendly until you say that God is holy and he has a moral standard of right and wrong and the world's culture and the world's standard is wrong. They're going to hate you. They're going to accuse you of being self-righteous and judgmental. They're going to be tolerant of you and your Christianity until you refuse to lie to cover their wrongdoing or cheat in favor of the company. And at that point, they're going to turn against you. They're going to go behind your back and turn others against you. But you know what? On the job, if you state or imply things like, well, you know, God loves everyone and we're all going to go to heaven or you laugh at their dirty jokes or you go to the same filthy movies that they go to and you want to be part of the office chatter and so on or you lie for your coworkers, or you lie for the boss. You know what? The world's going to think you're wonderful. The world's going to think your version of Christianity is good. But here's the problem. You've just compromised the testimony of Jesus Christ.
One pastor pointed out that we see the world's hatred in those who claim to be liberal and tolerant people. We're liberal, we're tolerant of differing viewpoints. But all of a sudden, they're not so tolerant when it comes to Christian absolutes. He said this, he said, they demonstrate their forbearance and large-hearted goodness when they confront diverse opinions, varied lifestyles, and even idiotic practices. But if a Christian claims that Christianity is exclusive, as Jesus insisted, or that moral absolutes exist because they're grounded in the character of God as the Bible teaches, or that a hell is is to be shunned as well as heaven to be gained, the most intemperate language is used to try to eradicate the poor fool the world hates. Satan is called the prince of this world. He opposes all things related to Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that believers are going to face hateful opposition when they confront that society? Jesus told his disciples, the world's going to hate you for my sake. If even the religious crowd, who are actually of their father, the devil, hated Jesus so much, can believers today expect things to be easier for us? If we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and we actually live out our Christian life, the world will hate us even as it hated Jesus Christ. But, according to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, that ought to make us happy. Because if we receive persecution from the world because we represent Christ accurately, we're going to experience the fellowship of His suffering. Look in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll move on. 1 Peter Chapter 4. In verse 13, Peter says, But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part, He is glorified. We're not to be loved by the world. Jesus said, we're not of this world. I've chosen you out of it. Therefore, the world is going to hate you. Why does the world hate Christianity? Because they hated Christ first. Secondly, we oppose the culture. We oppose the world. And thirdly, the world hates Christianity because true Christianity and Jesus Christ exposes their sin. Go back to our text in John chapter 15 and note what Jesus says in verse 22. Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now... Have they both seen and hated both me and my Father? Here's a reason why the world hates Jesus Christ, hates Christianity, because it exposes their sin. 
Jesus said, if I hadn't come and spoken, if I hadn't done the works that I did, they had not had sin. They wouldn't have been exposed for what they are and who they are. But because of the truth and because of my actions and because of my miracles, now they don't have a covering for their sin. And this is the reason why they hate me. Because they're exposed and they don't like it. Jesus said that when he came and spoke the truth, it uncovered their lifestyle for what it was as sin before God. And now there's nothing to cover that. And they don't like how it makes them feel. Now they are accountable. Here it is. They're accountable to either receive the truth concerning themselves or to reject it. What did Jesus do? What was the message that Jesus preached? The message Jesus preached was repent or perish. Jesus called on men to repent because of their sin and their offense to God. In Matthew chapter 11, we won't take the time to go read that portion of Scripture. But in that portion of Scripture, Jesus denounces the cities where he had done most of his miracles. And the reason was because they wouldn't repent. Here they had all of this opportunity. Here they see the very Son of God. They see the work of God. And He had done so many miracles, but they would not repent. And Jesus says, and He made it clear, that it's going to be more tolerable even for the pagans of Tyre and Sidon and for the wicked Sodom and Gomorrah on Judgment Day than those cities because they had so much opportunity and they chose to reject it. And what that tells us is that increased light that is rejected brings on increased guilt over sin. Jesus said, if I hadn't come, they they wouldn't have known what sin was. They had not had sin. They wouldn't have thought themselves to, to be. But now they don't have a covering for it. And they hate me because of it. And let me just say to you, friend, The message that Jesus preached is the very message that he has chosen us to preach. To call men to repentance. To preach the gospel. That is our job in cooperation with the Holy Spirit of God in this world. We're to preach the gospel and call on men to repent. And what does that do? It generates the most intense opposition and hatred from the world. Calling men to repent. Repent of what? How about repent of abortion? How about repent of immorality? Simply saying in our day, in our culture, simply saying that God created male and female and marriage is to be between a man and a woman generates so much hostility. Simply for speaking truth. Any other thing the culture promotes that the truth of God is in opposition to, it causes rage in this world. When Jesus exposes people's sin, unless the Holy Spirit of God is convicting them and drawing them to Christ, how do they react? Very defensively. Why is it that when a preacher stands up and preaches, and simply preaching the word of God, the response from some people is, oh, I hate that guy. I don't like that preacher. I don't like that loud 
preaching. I don't like, I don't like what he's saying. Oh, and inside, maybe even some in this room today. I don't know. I can't see your heart, but God does. Why do they react that way? Because it's exposing what they are before God. And they don't like how it makes them feel. John 7 and verse 7, Jesus said, The world hateth me because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. John 3, 19, Jesus said, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Why do they hate it? Because they don't want to feel the conviction of their lifestyle before God. These people heard Jesus' words. They saw his many miracles that no one else had done, but they still rejected him because he exposed their sin. And you know what, friend? That is still true today. It is still true today. There is more than enough evidence to believe in Jesus Christ. There is more than enough truth that is given, but people reject it or bring up other excuses for their unbelief because they enjoy their sin and they don't want to repent. This is why people say, you know what, oh yeah, I grew up in Christianity, but I don't want anything to do with Christianity. Oh, this person did this and this person did that and I had these bad experiences and, 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 and all of it, all of it, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm going to go live my own life. Why do they do that? Because they don't want to be accountable for truth makes them feel uncomfortable. They'll come up with all kinds of reasons, whatever it can be. And the reality of it is they actually just enjoy their sin. And they don't want to repent of it. Verse 25, look at verse 25 of our text, John 15. Verse 25. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Verse 25 tells us that the world's hatred for Christ and for believers, it doesn't thwart God's sovereignty or his plan, but rather it actually fulfills it. Jesus is citing from Psalm 69 in verse 4 that says they hate me without a cause. Or they that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. See, unbelievers can rage against God, but they don't actually have any basis for their hatred. And they inadvertently are actually fulfilling God's word. Jesus said, this has come to pass that the word is fulfilled. God is sovereign. God is just. God is holy. Nobody can thwart his will. You can reject God in this life, but you certainly won't in the next. He calls on men everywhere to repent or perish. No one can escape that. No one can get away from that truth of God. And that leads us to the last thought. We see the world's hatred of Christianity, but secondly, we see our responsibility to a hostile world. Now notice verse 26. 
Jesus says to his disciples here, here, but when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Here is our responsibility to a hostile world, namely to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Jesus tells his disciples here, when the Comforter has come, even the Spirit of truth that I'm going to give you and I'm going to send to you, he promises them the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he says what's going to happen is that the Spirit is going to testify of Christ. He's going to point to me. But he does that through his word, and he does that through your witness. You're also going to be a witness of me. Go to Acts chapter 5 with me. We see an example of this very truth being played out. But we also see the reaction of the world to it. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. So if you back up just a little bit, the apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin because they're preaching Jesus Christ and the Sanhedrin says in, in verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew, and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to their hearts and took counsel to slay them. You see the fulfillment of what Jesus says? When the Spirit of God comes that I'm going to give to you, He's going to be a comfort to you. He's going to testify of me, and you're going to be a witness of me, but know that the world is going to hate you. And so here they testify of Jesus. They speak in His name. The religious crowd says, we told you not to do that. They said, wait, we've got to obey God rather than men. And Peter begins to witness of Jesus Christ. You crucified Him. You slew Him. You hanged Him on a tree. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. And when they heard that, they wanted to kill him. I think that's a perfect example of the fulfillment of what Jesus said was coming. What they would do through the ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit of God empowered them and enabled them. And then they were witnesses to others. Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you'll receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. That same Spirit empowers God's people today. We have the same job, brethren, in a hostile world to be a witness of Jesus Christ. That's what the disciples did. They testified about what they had seen, about what they had heard. We're to testify of Jesus Christ and what he's done in our own life. Acts 4 and verse 20, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. 
Listen, they didn't make up cleverly devised fables. They were eyewitnesses of Christ's glory and his majesty. That's what Peter said in 2 Peter 1.16. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. This isn't a joke. We're not deceived by something else. Not when we made known unto you the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He testified concerning Christ. And friends, we have the factual testimony in the New Testament right here. And our witness, our witness is not just, listen, listen, understand this. Our witness is not just true for those who believe. It is true for, for whether or not people believe it or not. It's always true. The point is this. The Spirit of God uses the believer to testify to others about the truth of Jesus Christ. And the question is, are you really cooperating with that? Are you cooperating with that? Our responsibility to a hostile world is to simply preach Jesus and keep on preaching Jesus. I'm going to conclude here. But there are three applications that I want to make quickly. Takeaways from this. First is this. As born-again believers, we actually need to have more contact with the world. Say, well, didn't you just say that we're not of the world and we're chosen out of the world? Yes, but there's a big difference between being part of the world or of the world and having contact with it. We actually need to have more contact with the world. Certainly, we're not to be of the world. We're to be in the world. And Jesus, and we're going to talk about that in John 17, where Jesus prays to the Father to protect those that he has. They're in the world, but they're not of the world. We ought to be in the world, but not of it. We ought to be asking the Lord for opportunities to rub shoulders with just one person who needs the Savior. Listen, you can't testify to the truth about Christ if you don't have contact with people who need Him. Ask the Lord for just one. Who? In your, and one of, one, of, one of the evangelists challenged us with this earlier this last week during our missions conference. I think it might have been Brother Kuzel. Who right now... Currently, is the Lord uh, using you in, in their life to, to try to bring them to Christ? Did I, I said that all kind of all funny. You understand what I mean, though? Who are you actively involved with right now trying to bring them to Christ? That, that ought to weigh heavy. It ought to weigh heavy. Now, it could be a mother with her children. Praise the Lord. But what about those out in the world? What about people in your sphere of influence? What about people on the job? What about people that you, your neighbors, they're all around. And pray for our neighbors. I'm working my way down in our neighborhood right now. Trying by the grace of God anyway. Who are you actively involved with? Trying to bring them to Christ. We ought to pray that the Lord opens the doors and gives us opportunities to rub shoulders with just even one so that I could be used of God to make a difference in all eternity in that person's life.
if you don't have a, a, a burden for that, if that doesn't concern you, there's something that is spiritually missing in your Christian life. The second is this. Pray for alertness to opportunities and then boldness to speak. I often think about when I witness to somebody, after I leave that, I'll, I'll go back in my mind and I'll think, oh man, I should have said this, I should have said that. And hindsight is always twenty twenty, they say, right? Oh, that would have been good in this situation if I remembered that. And you know what? That's okay. That's our human nature there. That's our, our frailty. That's our imperfections coming out. That's okay. The Lord will still use it. But I would say this. In witnessing opportunities, most of us do not err on the side of being too bold. Try to soften it down a little bit so that it's more palatable or acceptable. And I want to drive them away and kind of a thing. We typically don't err on the side of being too bold with the truth. But you know what the Apostle Paul said to the church in Ephesus? He said, pray for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. What is the implication? Paul says, this is how I'm supposed to do it. Pray for me that I would speak with boldness as I ought to speak. We need to ask the Lord, not just for opportunities, but for boldness when we have them. Just give the truth. We have a sin problem. We are an offense to God. God's going to judge our sin. We all have this problem. But praise the Lord, God made a way through Jesus Christ. The third is this. Expect from the world what Jesus received from the world. Mostly hatred, but some fruit. You following me? Expect from the world the same thing that Jesus did. Mostly hatred, but some fruit. Back in our text, one last look here in John 15 and verse 20. At the end, Jesus says here, middle part of the verse, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. In other words, Jesus didn't always, always have hatred. But if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. But you know what? There are some fruit. If they've accepted my word, they're going to accept yours too. If you expect everyone to respond favorably to the gospel, you're going to be discouraged when they don't. Or you're not giving the true gospel. But if you expect everybody to respond negatively, you won't even try to bear witness. Because what's the point? What's the use? Jesus promises that some are going to believe through your
your witness. Look it up in Acts chapter 18. And so the point is, our job is to sow the seed. Our job is to just keep on proclaiming the good news. And the promise of Galatians is that, listen, when you sow the right seed, you're going to bear fruit. It's going to bring in a good crop at some point. Just through sowing the seed. Just through giving the good news. That's our responsibility in a hostile world. Just keep on preaching the news. Let me wrap it all up with this. We said how chapter 15 is broken up into three sections. The first section is all about abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ. That is the root of everything else. That deals with our relationship to Christ. That has to be in place first. And then he goes on to talk about our relationship to other believers. He says that you love one another but then in this last section, he talks about our relationship to the world. That the world is going to hate us. But I want you to note that our relationship to Jesus Christ is what is presented first. Because if we are abiding in Christ, we are going to have the ability to have victory over the world and to be a true witness for Jesus Christ. You can't be what you're supposed to be if you're not abiding in him first. So Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen. He says, you need to be, you need to be in me. You need to abide in me. And I want you to love one another. But know this, the world is going to hate you. But I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the power to overcome and to serve me. That's a lesson we need to learn. That's a lesson we need to grab onto. Are you cooperating with the Spirit of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, Lord, that you'd use it in our lives today. Lord, I do pray as well for one this morning that may not be saved. They've made the excuses. They don't want anything to do with Christianity because this person did this or that person did that. But in reality, when we look at their own life, their own standing before God, And Lord, I pray that you bring conviction to their heart of their own condition in the eyes of God and draw as we seek to lift up Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet.